Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you on uh, this Sunday and be with you uh, for this sports camp. Welcome to those who are uh, part of Riverbend Bible Church. It's a great privilege to be with you and uh, to have been invited to come and minister this weekend. Um, I have had an absolute ball. I I rang my wife last night and uh, thankfully there's a two-hour time time difference between here and in Australia. So it was 11 o'clock or 11.30 here, but it was only 9.30 and uh, and so it was uh, it was a good time to chat with her. And I told her how blown away I've been just with everything uh, this weekend, uh, from the sports to just the way things have been run. And uh, and how good was that talent show last night? I mean, that was impressive. Uh, I I told her I said I I didn't I, I couldn't believe it how how good Riverbend's own Mr. Bean was. Um, we had a, a, a real live, uh, we had a lot of impressions. Mr. Bean was phenomenal. Uh, we even had uh, uh, Edward, uh, our very own Susan Boyle. Uh, how good was he? Just totally uh, shocked us with his operatic singing. And uh, the lip syncer, who is the, where is the lip syncer? Um, where is she? There you are. Yeah, Riverbend's own Britney Spears. Well done. Good job. That was fantastic. Um, it was great. Uh, to see uh, all the talent coming out and, uh, and have a good laugh and, and good time. It's been a, a great privilege, as I said, to be able to open the scriptures with you and, uh, and go through uh, some very important questions. If you're uh, just joining us for the uh, very first time this morning, we've been doing a series I've entitled Why, and we've been seeking to answer some of these very important questions. The first message we talked about was why God? Is it reasonable? Is it uh, uh, sensical, if you would, to believe that there is a God? Uh, Why should we believe that there's a God? And then the second message we looked at last night was why the Bible? Can the Bible be trusted? Uh, Is it reasonable to believe that through one book God has spoken to us? And I believe that it is indeed so. So I guess if you could kind of put a little theme to each one, I guess you would say that the first message we looked at God is, last night we looked at God speaks, that this God who created everything has actually spoken to us through his word and through his son. And this morning, we're going to look at this question called, why the gospel? And I guess if you would put a theme to this one, it would be, And for the next one, it would be that God saves. That this God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it and formed you and I and instilled within us a uniqueness and a purpose, uh, that this God who has spoken to us, who has not hidden himself from us, but has revealed himself to us, is also a God who saves a God who seeks and to save us. We've been looking at Acts chapter 17. That's kind of been our main text. So if you could turn with me there uh, this morning, Acts chapter 17. Now, I know that many of you are very tired. I know that many of you have probably not gotten a lot of sleep and that you've been up early playing all different kinds of sports and different things like that. But if I could just hold your attention for the next 30 to 40 minutes or so, and uh, if you could just maybe try and sit up and, and uh, put, I don't know, matchsticks in your eyes or whatever you need to do, get your friend to pinch you every now and then. Um, I think these next two messages, actually these next two messages are by far uh, the most important out of the whole weekend. Acts chapter 17, we've been talking about and looking at Paul's sermon in Athens 
on, uh, on Mars Hill or the Areopagus as it's uh, recorded in some translations of the scriptures. And I want to just jump down to verse 30. And he's talking about the, uh, the idolatry that has uh, been so prevalent in this city and that which was what provoked him to begin to preach. Verse 30 says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. After Paul preaches about this unknown God and the existence and the nature of God and how he has revealed himself to us through the scriptures in the person of Jesus Christ, that's how Paul knew this unknown God. Paul knew the scriptures and of course Jesus revealed himself to the apostle Paul there on the road to Damascus when he was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. But what compelled Paul to begin to preach this sermon was the blatant idolatry which was plastered throughout the city all around him. Uh, the worship of false gods and these sad attempts of men to take parts of God's creation and form them and fashion them into objects of worship was what stirred up Paul to say to these Athenians, hey, listen, you have, you, you, you have missed it. God is not someone who can be fashioned in some sort of stone or gold or silver or wood. God is not a God who can be made like that. Let me tell him to you. Now, the last two messages, I, I think maybe if, and maybe not entirely, but I've kind of almost targeted our intellect in some ways. Talk to you about reasons why it makes sense, and it only makes sense. Life only makes sense if you believe that God made everything. I've tried to explain to you why uh, the Bible is unique amongst all other books that have been ever written, and that it is at least worthy of your consideration as the Word of God, uh, and that He has spoken to you. But this morning, I want to speak to your conscience. I want to speak to your conscience. Paul says that God, this God who has created the universe and everything in it and has spoken to us, has appointed a day that he will judge the world in righteousness. There is an appointment that each and every one of us cannot miss. You cannot be late for. Uh, you cannot reschedule. You cannot do anything to avoid because it's an appointment made by God. And he says that I have appointed a day in his calendar sometime that God will judge the world. Now, we talked about this in our first message that we don't often like this idea of, of judgment. We don't like this idea that, uh, that people uh, judge us or condemn us. And maybe we don't even like this idea that God is a judge, but he is. God will judge the world in righteousness. This means that this God who created everything is a moral being who has a standard by which he will hold each and every person accountable to. Now, 
you and I may be convinced about the existence of God. Maybe you've even sat through these messages and thought, yeah, maybe there is a God, and okay, maybe I'll give the Bible some consideration. Maybe the Bible is, it, is true, and uh, you know, maybe I, I could give it a bit of uh, attention in my life. But you know, it's very easy to believe in the existence of God and to even believe in the truthfulness of the Bible, but to miss the message of the Bible. Because the Bible has, if I could put it uh, bluntly, one main message. This is the message, to be honest with you, which got me on a plane to come over here and to preach. This is the message that I have given my life over to, to proclaim to as many people as I possibly can. This is the message that has changed my life and uh, brought me from death to life. It's a message that we call the gospel. It's the message of Christianity. It's the message of Christ. It's the message which distinguishes Christianity from every single other religion that is out there. The gospel. And this is what I want to do for the next two messages, is talk about this amazing, phenomenal message that we call the gospel. And with that, I want you to turn with me to the next book of the Bible from Acts, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, a book written by the great apostle Paul, and arguably the greatest book which uh, explains the message of the gospel. Uh, That's its entire theme. If you want to know more about what Christians are all about, read the book of Romans. It will explain the message of the gospel clearly and succinctly. So Romans chapter 1, and uh, Paul says here in uh, verse 15, go down to verse 15, after he does his kind of greetings to these, uh, these people in Rome, this church in Rome, verse 15 says, So as much as in me is, I am now ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For by it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says, all right, I am ready to preach the gospel. Now, what does the word gospel mean? Well, in its simplest form, the gospel means good news. Uh, I am ready to tell you the good news of, of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and this is what's different about Christianity right off the bat from all other religions. You see, all other religions will offer you maybe at best some good advice. But Christianity, but the Bible is the only uh, uh, book that gives you good news. And that's what, that's what was proclaimed when Jesus was born by the angels. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great news. Uh, this is not just good advice. This is good news. That Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And he, Paul starts off his message, though, of good news rather abruptly. Look at, look at uh, verse uh, uh, 18. All right, so he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am ready to preach the gospel. Here is the good news. Are you ready? Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed... 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what, uh, uh, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal uh, God, power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's the good news? I mean, the good news is that God's holy wrath or anger is poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness? I mean, is Paul, is he like a, is, is, is he like a sadist who just enjoys causing people pain? Is this the good news of the gospel? Why does, why does Paul start off this message of good news this way? It would be like me coming to you and saying, hey, I've got, I've got some good news for you. Oh, yeah, what is it? Uh, you're, uh, you're sick of cancer and you're going to die. You'd be like, what? What, are you, what is wrong with you? That's not good news. But Paul does this for a very important reason. Because the reality is, is you cannot appreciate and understand the good news of the gospel until you have come to a realization that there is some bad news as well. Paul doesn't gloss over things. He doesn't paint things lightly or nicely. He says it the way that it is. And even if it makes us uncomfortable to think of this and realize this, this is what we have to come to realize if we are going to understand the message of the gospel. You see, this diagnosis of mankind, that we are under the wrath and the judgment of God, is so important and necessary Because unless we understand who we actually are before a holy and righteous God, you will never fully understand or appreciate salvation unless you realize your need for it. Let's be honest. This assessment of mankind is not popular. This is what gets Christians in trouble for being so judgmental or being so unkind or unloving or whatever. We all desire to think in good of ourselves and to delight in our own righteousness. I I, I have yet to share the gospel with someone who's a non-believer, and I've asked them the question, do you think you're a good person? And to be honest with you, I have yet to hear someone say, no, I'm not. Most people believe that they are good by nature. That in, some, in them is something that is worth God's uh, attention and affection. And that we have something in ourselves that we can stand before God with and say that we are good. We like to think of ourselves as righteous. We like to think of ourselves as good in this way. And yet, the Bible describes us very differently. It was Malcolm Muggeridge, the famous uh, British journalist who says this about the depravity of man, that being the the lostness and the sinfulness of mankind. He says that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. In other words, it's not hard to see and realize the sinfulness of mankind, but he says at the same time, it's the most intellectually resisted fact. 
The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality. And yet at the same time, it is the most intellectually resisted fact. I don't want to think of myself as a bad person. Now, the reason, again, why Paul starts his good news with bad news is because salvation, as God declares in the scriptures, is by his immeasurable, unmerited favor, something we call grace. Something that you cannot earn. Something that you do not deserve. But grace is only sought when a person first sees their desperate need for it. Now, this is a a weighty sermon this morning, and I know that you're going to go off soon and play sports and do different things, but I just want to leave you and put this weight on you for a little while for you to consider. Paul goes on in his first three chapters of Romans to give his analysis of how God comes to this conclusion that we all deserve his righteous judgment, that if God were to judge us based upon our performance and our righteousness that we would all fall short of his glory. And so let's just kind of work through. We're going to do a real breeze uh, through Romans, uh, these first three uh, chapters of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 2, and you'll see, first of all, that mankind is impartially evaluated. Mankind is impartially evaluated. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you judge and practice the same thing. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge these practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and the forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads us to repentance? But in accordance with the hardness and the impenitent heart, you are treasuring up or storing up wrath uh, upon yourselves. Uh, sorry, where did I go? Uh, yeah, upon yourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness and indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of men who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, for there is no partiality or favoritism With God. First of all, what you notice about God's judgment is that man is impartially evaluated. God judges based on truth. And that's a good thing that we have a God who is truthful in his judgments. He is not a corrupt judge, he is not a judge that can be bribed or uh, or manipulated by anything or anybody. This means that God uh, evaluates us not based on his feelings, but on the facts. And that's the way that it ought to work, is it not? That's what we expect of the judges of our land, that they would judge not based upon how they feel about a person, but upon the facts of the case before them. God's evaluation is also impartial. He says there is no partiality with God. That means there's no favoritism shown to one people group or another. 
Back in Acts chapter 17, remember, Paul says that out of one blood, God has created all men. That means it doesn't matter the color of your skin, the nationality that you come from, the height that you are, the hair color that you are, the talents that you have, or whatever it is that God judges absolutely impartially. There is no people group that can stand before the righteous God and claim victim status or claim some sort of unfairness or claim some sort of privilege before a holy God. God is absolutely impartial. And he will judge all people equally based upon their works and upon their opportunity. God's evaluation of mankind is comprehensive. Verse 6, he says, uh, there and he says he will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honor and immortality uh, skip down to verse 16 he says in the day that God will judge the secrets of men the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel this God who created everything, even knows the secret things that we think and that we do. And we may hide things from our parents, from our pastors, from our friends, from our spouses, but you don't hide anything from God. And on Judgment Day, everything comes out. And everything is laid out on the table. And God judges righteously, rightfully, truthfully, comprehensively, and equally. Now, it's interesting. What does this truthful judgment, this equal judgment, and this comprehensive evaluation of us conclude with God? Now, again, just be honest with yourself. If God were to lay out everything, even your secret things before him, what conclusion would he come to? Would you be innocent? Well, Paul tells us, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. He says, man is impartially evaluated. God lays everything out on the table. And then he says, uh, he, he, he shows us that through this evaluation, man is found to be individually corrupt. Verse 10 says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. Uh, there is none who does good. No, not one. After God judges mankind equally, truthfully, and comprehensively, he discovers or he defines and he concludes that man is individually corrupt. Man, God's evaluation of each individual is based on the same standard and the same knowledge. And it comes to this conclusion that we are corrupt in our standing. No one can claim righteousness before God. You cannot stand before God and say, I am good. Because he says there is none righteous, no, not one. You stand before God as a guilty sinner. We are corrupt in our minds. He says there is uh, no one who understands. And I think that this is talking about a, a certain kind of understanding. In other words, there is, there is none that understands God. Man in his natural fallen state has no understanding of the things of God. The very inner being of their person is darkened and blinded by their sin. 
and we are corrupt in our will. He says, not only is there no one who is righteous, there's no one who understands, but there's also no one who even seeks after God. You see, man in their unregenerate state doesn't seek after God. God seeks after them. God comes to them. You know, the most glorious picture and one of my favorite stories in all the Bible is right back in Genesis chapter 3. If you're not familiar with Genesis chapter 3, it's the story of when Adam and Eve sinned and plunged us all into a sinful uh, state. But the most remarkable thing after God knows that Adam and Eve do that is that he doesn't stay in the heavens and say, well, tough luck, you're on your own. God comes looking. God comes seeking. God comes searching and says, Adam, where are you? Adam didn't seek for God. God sought him and God is seeking you. He is calling you. Even though you may not be seeking him. He says, we are corrupt in our will. We don't seek after God. We don't do those things which are right and pleasing to God. We are corrupt in our morals. He says they have, have, they have all turned aside and they have become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. This phrase, uh, turned aside, is often used to describe people who in their morality leave God and turn to other things. Does this not describe the human race? Does this not describe the world that we live in? Is this not conforming to reality that we see all around us? And so in all of this, we are corrupt in our behavior. There is none who does good, no, not one. It moves toward our outward behavior because we are simply a byproduct of all of these things. Man is individually corrupt. And therefore, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 concludes that we are, man is also then universally condemnable. Verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may become guilty before God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you have been to court uh, as a, as a uh, uh, you know, not as a witness, as a, def- as a defendant. But basically what he's saying is this, is that God's judgment is so comprehensive and so accurate that there will be none of us who will be able to render any kind of answer to him or excuse to him that we will be stopped in our mouths and left speechless. We are universally condemnable. God's evaluation of us is is honest, it's fair, it's comprehensive. None can claim righteousness. And therefore, there is not one single argument that you and I can bring to the table that would pronounce us innocent or good. And therefore, man is entirely helpless. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law or by the adherence to good things or the righteousness that we think that we have, no flesh will be justified in his sight because by the law is just simply the knowledge of sin. Now, I know this is sometimes hard to hear, but I can't get to the good news until you have accepted the bad news. The good news is great. The good news is phenomenal. The good news is coming tomorrow morning. So you have to come back. But I want to leave us with this heavy weighty part of the gospel that you and I are entirely helpless and hopeless without God. At that appointed judgment, if you find yourself there outside of Jesus Christ, you will stand before a holy Righteous, just, loving, good, and fair God. He will lay all of your secrets out. He will judge you according to his standard, the same standard that he will judge me and everybody else by. And if you stand there proclaiming and defending yourself, Your mouth will be stopped. You will have no argument. You will have no defense. You will have nothing to say to this God that would proclaim you innocent or good or righteous before him. This is how Paul starts this message of the gospel. This is me. This is Matt. This is everybody. We all stand together as one blood before our Creator. Is there hope for those of us who are helpless and hopeless? Let me just read a couple of verses and then we'll close. Verse 21. All the world is guilty before God. There's nothing you can do to justify yourself but I am thankful this little three-letter word is the one of the most important words in all of the Bible. But. But. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all And on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation or as a sacrifice or as an atonement for your sins by His blood, 
through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance or his patience, God has passed over the sins that have previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Your helplessness and your hopelessness is made hope and joy and salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Why Jesus, you ask? You'll have to find out tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that we have looked at, and I am keenly aware that I, in my frailty and in my finiteness, cannot do justice to this message. And that it is not by my power or strength or anything that can open eyes that are spiritually blind. And I pray, Father, throughout the day that if there's those who have not yet repented and come to faith in Christ, that they would feel and sense the weight of their sin today. That they would see themselves honestly and truthfully for who they really are. That all the messages that are told to us in the world that we are good and that we are um, okay, and that we don't need anything, that they would be clouded out and that your Holy Spirit would take your holy word and impart truth to the hearers. And may you shine your glorious light of the gospel into our hearts. For those of us who are believers, we, we have accepted the free offer of grace which you have extended to us. May we once again feel appreciation because we are reminded of who we were and what we would face on our own if we stood before you. Father, we love you and we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die in our place. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.